the theme for tonight's talk is increasing our capacity for life. I want to explore a certain aspect of the question of what it means to move from an a bound, unfree life to a boundless, free life. And what that really means for us in a very real way as we start to walk further down our spiritual path. And I want to talk about this from an experience that I had last year when I was in England and use it as an example of something that was very profound, very impactful. And as these experiences can do, they have a way of informing us over and over and over again for a long period of time when we have a very powerful experience. My experience wasn't in a meditation retreat, but I had decided to engage in what's called a vision quest. And some of you might be aware of what a vision quest is, um, but it's when someone goes out into the so-called wilderness for a period of time without any people or any food and very, very few items to have for basic survival. So there was a friend who was leading these vision quests in England and I really was compelled. I was really interested in doing something like this as a challenge to myself. And so in the summer, in uh, last year, I went on uh, a four-day vision quest. And there were about four other people who were involved in this as well. And um, there were the two guides, the, the two leaders. And as it is, the... Uh, there's a whole process that's set up around going on a vision quest that when one goes out into the wilderness, even though one has a sense of being very alone, there's lots of safety nets set up so that if one runs into trouble, there are ways to notify uh, the base camp that one needs help. This was um, quite a strong experience, I think, both in the meditative a way as well, because the Buddha really encouraged us in the teachings to go into solitude, to really take time away, time in isolation. And what we do here in the West, for the most part, is create the conditions here for a retreat situation where we go into a quiet and somewhat isolated situation, but we're with lots of people when we do that. But when the Buddha talked about going into solitude, I have a hunch that he actually meant something different. <laughs> because going into solitude is something different <laughs> than sitting a retreat with other people. And going into solitude in the forest, as the Buddha did, or into a rather wild place, but it depends what you mean by wild, because in England I'm not sure it gets so wild. <laughs> But there are places that are quite vast and quite remote. And this is the, places, this is the place where my friend found, and, and, and we had the quest. So this was the summertime, and uh, I went out on my own with just um, a tarp to put over myself for the night, 
sleeping bag and a brown cloth and some way to get water. There's some streams, and I had a small little water purifier. And that was, and I found my spot, and that's where I was going to be for four days and four nights. It, it, it probably would have been a little bit different experience if maybe it wasn't in England. <laughs> because one thing about England is the weather there is very inconsistent. So for some reason, and, and they say there's a reason for everything, the day, the morning, we went out quite early in the morning, about 6 o'clock, it was raining. And for some reason, <laughs> it didn't stop raining for four days and four nights. I think that it had maybe really, in, in actuality, one window where the sun came out for two hours. And you can imagine what my mind did at that point. <laughs> but then the rains came again. So with this combination of conditions of being alone, being in solitude, being with, with very few items for protection, being without food, just water, uh, being in the rain and wet. My boots were wet the moment I, just the minute I started walking out. So I had wet boots for four days. And the kind of cold, not too cold, which is one of the saving graces. So those conditions generated the, in the, the, the assurance that it was probably going to be very unpleasant and probably intensely unpleasant. And that's what it was. <laughs> I can't tell you in how many ways that was the experience. <laughs> It was really very, very challenging. And the interesting thing was that I didn't experience that much fear as I would have thought, particularly through the night and just through the, the intensity of the days and, and, and nothing, nothing to do. We think we have nothing to do here. Try doing something like that. There's no tea. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was really left with myself as we all are here, in this very intensely unpleasant situation with no escape. And I suppose it's in these situations it's useful to have some Dharma practice <laughs> because there may be at least some way to understand how to hold this you know, when it gets so difficult, so difficult. So it's just sitting there. I mean, just... What's the options? <laughs> Sitting there or doing some walking? You know, it's that there's not a lot of options in the situation. And, and it was pretty heavy rain. It wasn't just light rain. It was heavy rain. So even to go out very far was very difficult. So I had to start asking myself some questions. And, and, and my mind started going into some very interesting places of exploration. The first assumption that I made about what was going on was that if only I could be equanimous enough, then I wouldn't be feeling all this dukkha. If I could just find a way to move my mind into some kind of equanimity, then this would just dissolve. It would just be a joyful experience. <laughs> 
You know, it be, and, and then, then it became, I saw how my mind started to personalize the whole situation. That I was feeling this intense dissatisfaction because I wasn't evolved enough. You know, because I wasn't deep enough in my practice, I didn't have enough training in my mind, I had so much more work to do, this was proof, because I was so miserable in the conditions. <laughs> You know, really taking, my, taking myself to that edge of the most intensely difficult conditions and then personalizing it. It's my fault. You know, it's my fault that I'm so miserable. And, you know, I was able to sit with that one for a little while, that all oh, this is my fault. This is really, really awful. And, I, you know, if I could just find a way out within my own mind, then it would be all right. It even went a little further that if I was really evolved, then I would be sitting there on the rock <laughs> with, the, with the rain falling and feeling cold and being all wet and not really being able to get dry and hungry <laughs> and feeling a little nauseous and sick as one does as they start to fast for a few days. That really, if my mind was evolved, I would be sitting here in a very blissful state that I would be able to go into a state of mind where I would be untouched by the conditions, that I would be able to experience a detachment where nothing would impact my consciousness, and I would just have this clear light in my mind. And that was the place that one could go to, even in the most difficult of conditions when one was enlightened, when one, was, when one had really reached the goal. From this point of view, what I was getting into was what we might call transcendence. You know, that what this practice is about or what my work is about is to transcend into a whole nother reality where I'm actually not here at all. <laughs> <laughs> to transcend and to move into some kind of clear light, you know, where, where I'm just radiating light and heat and warmth, so the raindrops aren't even touching my body. <laughs> and then I could get up and I could walk and just, you know, just make, make a aura through the rain. <laughs> and, and that my, my stomach wouldn't feel <laughs> the, the lack of food, you know, and that I would just move into this totally transcendent place. And because I couldn't do that, it was proof that I wasn't evolved. This is the way the mind, the mind goes with that. What we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to be. It was a way of polarizing equanimity or a balanced mind with intense unpleasantness. That one either it was one or the other. Either I was incredibly equanimous or I was totally into the intensity. Of the, of the experience, and one or the other. There was, there, there was just the movement back and forth, and how I didn't want to go into the intensity, so how could I get into the equanimity, and this kind of flipping and flopping. So you can imagine after a little while realizing that that wasn't going to work, then I started asking a different question. What would it really mean to be equanimous in the face of this intensity? in this 
incredible unpleasantness. What would it really mean to be equanimous right here in the middle of it? And I remember I was doing my walking meditation. I, what else is there to do? <laughs> I, was just get, I just got up and I was just walking on this flat area of land, just back and forth and back and forth and feeling very sick, feeling like, you know, really, really just the, the contractions and the uh, cramps in the stomach from not eating and being cold and wet, walking back and forth, and not a lot to look forward to because this was probably only on the second day. Um, then just really asking this question, what would it really mean to be equanimous? To be right here, because that's what the teachings are about. That's what the teachings point to. Be here. Feel, experience, know what's going on. Don't try to escape, whether it's through our activities or through the mind. What would it really mean to be here? The definition of equanimity means a mind that is free of reactivity, a mind that's not rejecting the experience, a mind that's not clinging on to what it wants, what it likes, a mind that is still, a mind that is able to rest and meet its experience. So that was an invitation to me in reflecting on that to go into it to go into it, to drop deeply into the experience, into the intensity, into the unpleasantness that was, that was arising, rather than transcending actually to embody, to go into embodiment of the experience, to sink deeper and deeper. And I found myself doing that, just sinking in with each step, just sinking in and feeling and experiencing and feeling. And seeing that, my mind was able to stay steady with that. I wasn't really trying to fabricate some other kind of reality. I wasn't trying to transcend or to go away. I was just there with it, and it was unpleasant. It didn't mean that by being there as fully as I possibly can, that then it was going to shift into some kind of joy. It was what it was. It was what it was. Unpleasant and immensely unsatisfactory. <laughs> and I knew that at any point I could leave. You know, it was that, that I could leave. I wasn't in a situation that sometimes we're in when we cannot change the conditions. When we are in an intensely unpleasant situation and we have nowhere to go, we have to meet that challenge. And in some ways, this was fabricated. It was very much fabricated. And yet, that's why I chose it, to put myself right on the edge of that, to see what my mind would do with it, to really challenge my mind with it. I could have left. And I think that was, that's always a very important thing to remember for most of us in all of our, and not all of our experience, but most of our experience, is that we do have a choice. I mean, of course, as I said, there are many, many situations where we don't have the choice. But when we do explore and we look at it, we can see that we're not as trapped or victimized as we think we are. And we can back off. We can leave. We can say, I've had enough. This is the limit of my capacity to be here. I've reached that edge. And I don't have to push myself into more suffering with this. I can say, no, it's enough and leave. And I knew I could do that any at any point. That at any time I could say, okay, that's it. But I knew I hadn't reached that point. That 
stay with it and stay with it. So understanding this embodiment, going into the embodiment, what I discovered is that mind that is free of reactivity right in that, that stillness that can occur right in the middle of that, and that incredible attunement to physical life, being right there with presence and attention and, and exhilaration because it was, a, it was somewhat of a, a vulnerable situation, and with interest, and to be that whole with myself, to be that fully engaged with the experience by not moving away, not running away from it, to be fully there. And what that allowed for me, and I saw how important it was to be able to have my mind so prepared to listen so that I could respond skillfully and wisely in any particular moment that I might need to, because it was a very vulnerable and potentially dangerous situation. I was cold, I was sick, I was wet, I was hungry, and I was alone. And so it required that level of listening. It required that level of engagement so that I could listen in and know what my capacity was in that moment. To know that it's any moment I might need to say, this is it and I need help. I can't do this alone anymore. I can't go on my own anymore. And not to act foolishly, but to act wisely. And by keeping my mind free of that reactivity and the desire to escape or to transcend, but to embody that situation, I was able to listen in this way so that I could know when that moment would come. I realized that what I was really being asked to do, in a way, was an invitation to increase my capacity to meet my experience, to, to push the limit of what I was capable of experiencing. Because I think that too soon, often I do and maybe you do, too soon we pull back. Too soon we say, no, I can't do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to face it. But rather than, rather than doing that, just meeting it, going in a little further, going in a little further. And I saw that as I did this, it was increasing my capacity to be with something that I never knew that I could be with at this level. And it made me realize that in some ways that's so much of what our practice is. It's inviting us to increase our capacity to meet life. Because it seems that so many of us and so often we just want to hold back just a little bit. And maybe some of you have the experience too where you can almost feel yourselves tiptoeing through life. You don't really want to land don't really want to be here, don't really want to meet it. Something just keeps us a little bit away. We have our little bit of strategies, protection, from going in to meeting life in that way. But yet when we do, there's the potential for that expansion, expansion of mind, expansion of heart, expansion of physical limitation. And perhaps we're being asked this. Perhaps this is one of the invitations for us 
to meet experience wholeheartedly. But yet, when we do, it means we have to let go. We have to let go of some way that we think of ourselves, that we view ourselves, some way that we are holding our identity, our image of ourselves. Because as we let go of these self centered ways of reacting, these self centered ways of being around that are determined by our likes and our dislikes, as we let go, we are released into an opening that is left by this absence of the self. And in this opening, what we meet are the conditions of our life. When the self starts to move out, and the self isn't so manipulative and controlling of things, what we're met with is life, which is the very thing we're trying to avoid. And in this opening is where we experience the vulnerability of the exposure to the suffering of life. And when we let go, and when we let go, and when we let go, that's what we meet more and more. But of course, it isn't the only thing that we meet, because if that was what it was about, then we'd really be in trouble. But fortunately, as we let go, we also meet the vastness of the potential of joy and happiness. So not only do we meet the suffering or the pain of the conditions of life, but we meet the joy as well. I've seen this so often when I go to India, and the year, over the years that I've gone to India, that my capacity to be there has increased every time I've gone. That I can meet India in a way that I never could 13 years ago. I can be there, I can open to it, I can allow India in. Whereas the first time I ever went, I had to keep myself well protected because it was too threatening to myself and to what I was capable of meeting. But as we meet, as we meet experience, it, it does require a letting go and an opening but yet what we find is not necessarily going to be easier. And as we embody, as we embody the wisdom, as we embody life, we're not transcending, but we're falling into reality. We fall more and more into the truth of things. It's really this feeling of kind of falling into or sinking into reality, what's real, here and now. So we're not talking about, and I see this through my years of practice, we're not talking about reaching towards some specialized experiences, perhaps some out-of-body experiences or having special powers uh, to be able to move in and out of different realms, or, or even to to be able to generate perfect conditions in our lives so that we won't experience the difficulty anymore, which is what most of the world, well, most of, I should say, North America seems to be doing, is, is, is trying to put all the conditions of life together so that we don't experience anything uncomfortable or painful. But that's not what we're being asked to do uh, in the spiritual life. I really, I did really think that enlightenment 
or the spiritual life was about that. And I could see that coming up on my vision quest, how I was trying to find this place in my mind that I could escape to, which I was calling equanimity or clear light of consciousness or whatever we want to call it. But I think that we're being led back here <laughs> in all its simplicity, all its mundaneness. <laughs> this is from Yokin. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my robe was wide enough that I could just gather up the suffering. Not to practice or to gain more insight and wisdom so that we can put it all behind, but so that we can go into it. In my 20s, just through my conditioning and through the way that I was brought up, I couldn't watch the news, I couldn't read the news, I couldn't listen to the news. I did everything I could to stay away from any information about what was going on in the world because I realized that when I made contact with it, it stole away the little bit of happiness that I had. And I had no capacity to deal with the pain of what I was hearing when I would let myself take a glimpse or take a peek of what was going on. And because of that, I nearly missed the Vietnam War. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I'm certainly not proud of that. But my strategies were so in place that I was able to <coughs> manipulate my life in such a way that I didn't have to really tune in to what was going on. That's how strong my denial was in my 20s. Just keep it away. <laughs> and let's see what I could do to keep my life in some, some relevance of happiness. But 25 years later or so, when I was in that field last year, and it was pretty awful, it just was what it was. It just was what it was. It was life in its most elemental and basic form. That's what it was. It was just that condition of life. What happens, and, and not even that unique for me, because I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all that many people on this earth have to live in those kind of conditions. And we know that that is true. And when I was there, that was another thing that it really brought me into, was the reality that this is basic life for many, many people. And I just happened to live an extremely privileged not life, the way I, was, way I mentioned the last talk that I gave. When I was there in the field, I realized that it, it wasn't me, it wasn't that I was wrong. It wasn't my fault that the way it was. This is just the way it is, sometimes. And the question was, was what was my capacity to be with it? Well, 
my capacity to be with it, because this is how it is. This is what's going on. Not bad, not good, not right, not wrong, just what it is. So how does increasing our capacity and freedom go hand in hand? Because as we feel more free, as we feel the sense of ease and freedom in our life, we do have more capacity to meet life without the rejection, without the clinging, without the grasping, without interfering. Because our capacity is limited by our fixation, by the way we fixate on things. Our view of life and our view of reality that is determined by our likes and our dislikes and our reactions to that. And we become very narrow on that view. Our view becomes very isolated and we can only see in one way. It has to be like that. And the mind demands that conditions are the way we want them to be. And then we can find ourselves manipulating ourselves to fit ourselves into conditions. And maybe we'll get a match. Or then we might be able to control the conditions around us to match the way we feel, to get it all set up and aligned. And we get very frustrated and very demanding and very angry when conditions of life don't meet our expectations, don't meet our, our demands. And the mind gets very locked in, very locked in. And the mind is then full of reactivity and confusion. There's very little space to deal with life. There's very little capacity available to have access to wisdom and clear seeing and wise action, wise response. I found in my folder this lovely um, cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes, and probably many of you are thrilled at some of these cartoons. And unfortunately, you won't be able to see the expressions on Calvin, but I'll put it up on the board afterwards, because a lot of the um, joy of these cartoons are seeing Calvin's expressions. And in the first frame, Calvin is, is just standing there, and he's very irritated. And he said, if I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May. <coughs> so he's, he's, it's wintertime. And, and so then he starts to scream, and he says, on three, ready? One, two, three, snow! And he's yelling up at the heavens. In the next frame, he's just sitting there. Nothing's happening. <laughs> And then he looks up again and he said, I said, snow, come on, snow. And then the next frame, he's running around, snow. You know, he's getting really worked up. And then he looks up and he says, okay, then don't snow. <laughs> See what I care. I like this weather. Let's have it forever. And then that didn't work. <laughs> and then he's just kind of gritting his teeth and he says, please, snow, please, just a foot. <laughs> okay, eight inches, that's all. Come on, six inches. Even, how about just six? You know, bargaining. He's really starting to bargain, you know? And he's saying, I'm waiting. You know, he's getting really frustrated. Nothing's happening, it's not happening. And then the next frame, he's running around in circles, getting really, really agitated, really worked up. And then the next frame, he's totally exhausted. 
just sitting there. It's just not working. And in the last frame, he's saying, yelling up again at the heavens, he's saying, do you want me to become an atheist? <laughs> no, nothing's working. <laughs> but we can relate to that. That's what we do. That's what we find ourselves in. Not wanting to let go. The self so engaged in how it wants things to be. Can't let go. But we see then as we start to move from this feeling of being bound up and, and contracted and miserable in our life, and we start to look more closely into our mind and our consciousness, we start to understand more we start to see that the mind actually can free up, that we can start feeling more free in ourselves. And we see that one of the conditions of that freedom is that we're not so bothered by this or that. You know, it snows, it doesn't snow. It's nice when it snows, it's nice when it doesn't snow. You know, we start to feel this, more, this equanimity come in more around conditions of our life. We just have the capacity to be with conditions more often just the way they are. And we re recognize and we realize that as we feel more free, as we become more free, it doesn't mean that the conditions of our life stop in any way. That everything still goes on the way it goes on. You know? People are still born, people still get sick, they get old, they die. It all goes on just the way it's always gone on. With the old adage, you know, after enlightenment, mountains are still mountains. Yeah. All goes on. So what changes? We can look at what changes when we let go. When we let go, the self, the sense of ourself and the sense of the world around us just less solidified. It's less solid. It's more fluidity, more fluctuation in things, less holding on. Things start to loosen up. This one sutta from the Buddha is teaching about this agitation that arises through holding on. And he says, this is also from the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the discourses of the text that contains the discourses of the Buddha. He says, an untaught ordinary person regards the five aggregates as self. And the five aggregates are the five conditions that make up how we know ourself and the world. The five aggregates being material, taking material form as self, the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, and consciousness as self. He says that an untaught, ordinary person regards these five aggregates as self. This is who I am. And then he says, these conditions change, become otherwise, and consciousness is preoccupied with the change of these conditions. 
agitated mental states born of this preoccupation with the change of these conditions arise together and obsess the mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is anxious, distressed, concerned, and due to this clinging, he becomes agitated. So these conditions of, of material form, of feelings, of perceptions, mental formations, mental activity, consciousness, this is what we know ourselves, how we know the world. When this changes, we get preoccupied with it, get very agitated, and all those, those conditions of mind come together and we obsess. And the Buddha goes on, he says, for one who is skilled and disciplined in Dhamma, I'll change the pronoun, she does not regard these five aggregates as self, does not cling on to these five aggregates as who I am, does not regard mental forma uh, material formations like the body as self, feelings as self, perceptions as self, mental formations as self, consciousness as self. When these conditions change, her consciousness is not preoccupied with the change. Agitated mental states born of preoccupation with the change do not arise, and, the, and consciousness does not remain obsessed. Because her mind is not obsessed, she is not anxious, not distressed, not concerned, and due to non-clinging, she does not become agitated. So we look into these conditions of mind, of body, of feeling, perceptions, sight, sounds, taste, touch, smell, and we see them for what they really are. It's changing conditions, impersonal, empty of self, arising and passing in every moment. And through seeing this so clearly, we can, it's not even a matter of letting go because we see that there's nothing to let go of because we never had anything in the first place. And through the seeing of this so clearly, what happens is there's no more movement to hold on because we see and understand the futility of that. And we know the suffering of that. No, it's like we're holding a burning coal and don't even know we're holding it. But as soon as you realize that you're holding it, do you think you have to think about letting it go? You just drop it. <laughs> oh, I'm holding a burning coal. And in the same way, we are all doing that. Through this identification with things as me and my and I. And through seeing it more clearly, it more clearly, it ends that clinging because it doesn't give us anything anymore. We're empty-handed just as we've always been, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> So feeling free means we're not struggling with the conditions of life. We loosen our grip with the inner conditions and the outer conditions. There's less identification with this sense of 
me, mine, I. And we begin to know the truth, the truth of things. We can know and intimate and feel into the empty nature of this existence. We can know it for what it is. And with that comes the incredible potential to open to all of life, to have the capacity to meet all of the joy and all of the sorrow without repelling but really to really fully be there as life unfolds itself, shows itself, reveals itself in all of its immensity. Let's just sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.